Welcome to church this morning. You know, it's funny, at three minutes to 11, I was like, wow, there's nobody in church. Where is everyone? And now it's almost full. So welcome here this morning. We're glad you're here. I know many of you are regulars at our church, and some might be visiting with family uh, this, this weekend here, so we're glad that you're here. Um, as Debbie said, it's, uh, my name is Ben, and I have the privilege of serving as the pastor of young adults and care ministries at our church here. Some of you who uh, attend this church regularly may be wondering, we haven't seen you all summer, Ben. Where have you been? Have you been skipping church? Um, thanks for asking. This summer, actually, I was able to take two months off for parental leave. And that allowed my wife Lillian and I and our three little girls uh, to spend some time visiting our extended families. Um, first, we went to visit my mom and uh, brothers in New Mexico. And that was actually the first time in four years that we had all been together. One of the highlights there was doing a hike with uh, our entire family, including my mom and little Poppy. So there's a photo of us after that hike. Super proud of my mom, 70 years old, and she did a hike through a canyon called the Devil's Canyon. I'll let you imagine what that's like. Winter and Wren climbing on some of the red rocks in my hometown as well. It was good to be back home, and that made me miss New Mexico. And then later in July, we traveled to Sudbury, Ontario, uh, to visit with Lillian's family there. Our favorite activity, of course, there, jumping off the dock into the lake. My girls could do that all day until they're like blue from the cold, and yet they're just like, no, Papa, one more jump, one more jump, Papa. Okay. Well, it was a great summer, and I'm, I'm grateful to have had that extra time away with my family. But it's good to be back, too. Um, when I was back for my first Sunday a couple Sundays ago, I had many of you come up with hugs and smiles for me, and uh, it felt like coming back home, so thank you. And a big thank you also to the young adult leaders who uh, kept that ministry thriving through the summer um, with our weekly Tuesday summer nights gathering, so... Super thankful to them. Well, today we are continuing in our series in the book of Luke. We're looking at the message, the life of Jesus, and what it means to be his apprentices. Before we read the passage, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever experienced something unfair in your life? Maybe it was something minor, like someone cutting you off in traffic as you're trying to merge, or jumping in line in front of you at the grocery store. I have a feeling that doesn't really happen here in Canada. We're too polite for that, right? We, we save our, our cutting off for the highway when we're in our, in our car where nobody can see us. But maybe the unfairness was something a bit more serious, like getting passed over for a promotion at a job that, that, that you know you deserved. Maybe the unfairness, the injustice that you've experienced was actually something life-changing and devastating, like a spouse walking out on you, leaving you to pick up the pieces of your life. Sometimes the unfairness, the injustice that we experience is, is an isolated incident. It you know, it's kind of involves us and another person. But sometimes the injustice in our world is, is actually so systemic, it's, it's institutionalized. You know, we could point to something obvious like apartheid in South Africa, a system of racial segregation. But we could point closer to home to a system of residential schools, right? And the injustice that that perpetrated for many, many generations. Sometimes injustice has become so ingrained in our society that, that we don't even see it as injustice anymore. I would venture that all of us here have experienced some unfairness, at least, or injustice in our lives. Someone has wronged us. And, and, and how do we react, right? Like, what, what happens when that person cuts you off on the highway, merging onto Highway 1 there? You're like, oh, your blood boils, you get mad. We demand that someone do something, and you're like, you want to catch up, and, and, and you know, you're going to show them, right? Well, how, how do we respond to the injustice in our lives? 
How, how do we seek justice in those situations? And to whom can we appeal to do justice for us? Keep, keep those questions in mind as we look at our text from Luke today. Luke 18, 1 to 8 is about a case of injustice, and it's about the God of justice who will one day bring about vindication for all those who trust in him. We're going to read the passage now. You can follow along in your own Bible uh, if you brought one, or it'll be on the screen as well. Um, if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you just to keep them open. Um, it's a short passage, and we're just going to jump back into it as we go through the message this morning. So Luke 18, verses 1 to 8. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice, so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This is the word of the Lord. Will you join me in prayer as we pray, prepare to study God's word? God, we thank you for these words of your son Jesus uh, recorded here in Luke's gospel. Help us now to understand them. And, and God, I pray more than just understand them, but actually apply them and, and make them come alive in our hearts and in our lives here today as we wait for your kingdom to come in all of its fullness. God, I pray that the meditations of my heart, the words of my mouth, would be pleasing in your sight. Amen. Well, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. That's the context. And as he so often does, he tells them a story, a parable. At first glance, the message or application of this parable would be, seem pretty obvious, right? Verse 1, in fact, the introduction there, tells us he told them this parable to show them that they should always pray and never give up. Well, that seems pretty clear, right? Thank you, Luke, the gospel writer. Normally, we save the interpretation, the application to the end, right? But you've saved us some time. We can just skip the story now. We've got the point. Pray, never give up. Let's go home. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Before you rush out the doors, of course, it's not that simple. Stories, right, are, are, they're always more memorable, more nuanced, more fun than a simple command. And so Jesus tells a story, a parable that is surprisingly entertaining and humorous when we start to dig into it. Before we do that, just one more note on the context. In our Bibles, um, it's the start of a new chapter, so we tend to see it sort of in isolation as uh, just another story by Jesus. But, but really, it fits with that whole preceding section from Luke chapter 17 about the coming of the Son of Man and, and the imminent judgment that accompanies his return. If you were here last week, this is what Pastor Matthew preached about, being ready for that second coming of Jesus. We'll chat more about that kind of end-time context at the end of the parable, because it's an important element in understanding the meaning. Well, verses 2 and 3, they jump right into introducing two characters of the parable. A certain judge in a certain city who neither feared God nor cared what people thought, and a widow in that city who used to come to him with her plea saying, grant me justice against my adversary. 
Well, in terms of social status in that society, these, these two characters couldn't be further apart. On, on the one hand, you have the judge. He is a man of privilege, a member of the urban elite with a position of honor and, and power. As a judge, he would have presided over a community court where his word alone determined the outcome of cases and where he actually got to choose which cases got heard. This judge, however, is one corrupt guy. We're told he neither fears God nor has respect for people. He is actually missing the primary qualification of what it means to be a good judge in Israel, and I would say, indeed, any judge, to fear God. To fear God, to understand that even as a judge, you are accountable to the ultimate judge. That was the key prerequisite for being a judge in Israel. Listen to what King Jehoshaphat says in 2 Chronicles. He's appointing judges, and he says to them, Consider carefully what you do, because you are not judging for mere mortals, but for the Lord, who is with you whenever you give a verdict. Now let the fear of the Lord be on you. Judge carefully, for with the Lord our God there is no injustice or partiality or bribery. The judge doesn't have that key requirement. He doesn't fear God, and he doesn't seem to care what other people think either. He has no respect or regard for others. Um, this is not like a healthy independence, like not being concerned about other people's opinions, but rather just a complete disregard for others and their needs. What we're not told explicitly here, but in all likelihood, this judge is open to bribes, right? He's giving justice only to the highest bidders. Well, in contrast to that corrupt, powerful judge, the, the, the widow would have been among the most vulnerable, among the most weak in that cultural context. In a patriarchal society like ancient Israel, men held the power, and, and women were dependent on men for their protection and provision. Um, this male protector would have been a woman's father until she was married, and then her husband if she married. And then if her husband died or divorced her, she, she lost that protection, as well as the financial support. So, so widows are in this precarious position, both socially and financially. Um, I recognize that we might find these kind of cultural norms a bit strange, right? Or we disagree with the patriarchal system that undergirds it. Within our modern Western culture, women, including widows, have much more legal autonomy than, than they did then. And yet, even in our culture, women, like single mothers, like widows, are often still quite vulnerable, facing financial pressures and other challenges. Within ancient Israel, God had actually instituted numerous laws and safeguards precisely to protect the widows and other vulnerable people. Laws that were quite progressive compared to the cultures around them. Throughout the whole scope of Scripture, throughout the Bible, we see that God has a special place in his heart for the widows, along with the orphans and the foreigner. God himself promised to be their protector, and he consistently warns against taking advantage of these marginalized people. Exodus 22, for example, God says, Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. Deuteronomy 10, For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. Psalm 68, we read, A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. And this theme continues into the New Testament. We have James chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that God our Father find, accepts as pure and faultless is this, to 
to look after orphans and widows in their distress, to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. There are lots more examples from the Bible about God's heart for the widows and other vulnerable people, but I think you get the point from these verses. Justice for them was a big deal to God, and it's supposed to be a big deal to us too. I wonder if, if we would take a step back, take kind of a sober look at our own society and, and how we treat the marginalized, the vulnerable today. How do we care for and protect, seek justice for a single mother facing eviction by a greedy and unfair landlord? A, a, a migrant farm worker who, who doesn't have recourse to the legal system and doesn't speak English, perhaps. A person who's living on the streets, dealing with mental health struggles a child who's been entrusted into social services or foster parent care. God is, is judging our society by how we care for our most vulnerable. By the way, here is just a little uh, trivia for you. Did you know that the first ever pension fund and life insurance program was actually started by two Scottish ministers to care for widows? Can you guess what it was called? Is a mouthful, a fund for the provision of widows and children of ministers of the Church of Scotland. Inspired by the biblical call to care for widows and orphans, they started this program in the 1700s. That's a long time ago. To provide for the needs of widows after their pastor husbands had died. Um, and this fund actually still exists. Now it's simply known as Scottish Widows. And anyone, at least in the UK, can purchase life insurance through it. I found this really fascinating. There's a little picture of one of their earlier ad campaigns and now their contemporary ad campaign, Scottish Widows. Back to the parable. We have these two characters, a judge and the widow, and they couldn't be more different. But clearly, the, the, the widow, right, she's the hero of the story. In the context of Luke's gospel, this should not surprise us. More than any of the other gospel writers, Luke actually portrays women as the hero of a story and he elevates them. Uh, this parable occurs only in Luke, and, and throughout Luke and the book of Acts, uh, also written by Luke, there are seven accounts or, or stories involving widows. At Jesus' birth, one of the first people to recognize Jesus as God's Messiah is the prophet Anna, a widow who we are told never leaves the temple, fasting, praying day and night, longing for the redemption of Jerusalem. So, like Anna the prophet, in the parable, this widow is coming day after day, seeking justice. Let's keep going in verse 3. The widow kept coming to the judge with her plea, grant me justice against my adversary. This woman did not just show up once in the courtroom asking meekly for justice. No, she comes repeatedly, day after day, pleading her case persistently and loudly. As a single woman without a male protector or advocate, she had to be courageous to even show up in a male-dominated sphere like the courtroom. Unlike the quiet decorum of our Canadian courts, with their rules and protocols and lawyers reading statements, the ancient Jewish courtroom would have been a loud, noisy place, people shouting out their claims, waiting to be heard and advocating on behalf of themselves. So when her justice is denied, this, this widow comes back again the next day to plead her cause. As Pastor Daryl Johnson describes her, this is one gutsy woman. We're not sure exactly what her case is. Perhaps it's a, it's a financial claim, uh, the so-called ketubah or marriage settlement, 
That was something that a wife was entitled to in the case that her husband died uh, or a divorce from, kind of from the husband's estate. We don't know, but whatever her claim is, she feels she has been wronged, and she demands justice from the judge against her adversary. Well, you might be wondering, well, what is justice? I'm not going to give you a full sort of philosophical definition here. There's lots of different approaches to justice, but I think at its core, justice is about wrongs being made right. I, I think we all have an innate, God-given sense of justice, of what's right. Uh, I think we see it in children. I, I see it in my girls, for example, when they appeal to me uh, or to Lillian, when they feel like they've been wronged. Parents, maybe you've been in moments like this. Papa, she took my doll. Tell her to give it back to me. Right? All of a sudden, I have been placed in the position of arbiter and judge in this little courtroom with my two girls to make things right again. Whose doll is it? Whose doll was it in the first place? Who took it from whom? Who gets to have it now? Giving justice can be a difficult business. Of course, this is the basic function of our courts for, for, for adults, too, to determine who's at fault, to make sure damages are paid when required, to decide who gets the house or the car, and so on. So justice is about righting wrongs. It's about fairness. It's about upholding the rights that people are entitled to, and it's about protecting those who are vulnerable in our society. Okay, we've got these two characters. Let's see how the unjust judge responds to the widow. Verses 4 to 5. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. The judge readily admits that he doesn't fear God or care about people. Rather, his motive for doing what's right here is because the widow keeps bothering him and he's sick of it. In fact, he's worried that she might come and attack me, as our version, the NIV here, has it. If you will allow me just a brief Greek nerding out moment here, this is going to be fun. The word translated attack me here, it's an interesting word with lots of nuance and kind of different possible interpretations. Um, other translations tend to put it more metaphorically as wear me out or beat me down metaphorically. The word in Greek is hypopiatse, and it comes from the boxing ring, actually, where it meant literally a blow beneath the eye that would result in a black eye. So, is this widow going to come and literally attack the judge, giving him a black eye? Or is her constant pleading giving him a metaphorical black eye, making him look bad in the eyes of the city? Perhaps both meanings are intended. Um, just to let you know, I personally prefer the more violent physical interpretation here. Um, in part because I think it, it heightens, right, the contrast between the powerful judge and the little old widow to comedic proportions. The judge relents. He may not be afraid of God, but he's afraid of this gutsy woman. So verses 6 to 7, Jesus draws the conclusion to the parable. The Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? Jesus contrasts the unrighteous judge with the God of righteousness and justice. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater, kind of a classic Jewish formulation that Jesus uses on other occasions in his teaching. Luke 11, for example, teaching on prayer, Jesus 
says, if you earthly parents, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give you the good gift of the Holy Spirit? And then in Luke 12, teaching on God's provision of daily needs for for the disciples, he reminds them, how much more valuable are you than birds? And if God clothes the flowers of the field so extravagantly, how much more will your heavenly Father provide for your needs and your clothes, his children? So here we could insert, if this corrupt judge can finally give justice, how much more will the righteous judge of the universe ensure that his chosen ones, his children, get justice? God promises that Jesus, sorry, Jesus promises that God will bring about justice for his chosen ones. Note that this is not a promise that we get whatever we ask for in prayer. Um, I I think sometimes the, the, the parable is kind of misinterpreted this way, right? Just keep asking God for whatever you want, Uh, get some other people to join you, start a prayer chain, and eventually God will relent. Sometimes I think my kids employ this strategy with me, right? If they just ask insistently enough, loudly enough, in unison, I will relent. I will let them watch another episode of Gabby's Dollhouse. I don't like to admit it, but sometimes it works. No, the, the point is not that the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? But rather that God promises justice, to all those who trust in him for their vindication. God promises justice for all those who hope in him to make things right. As we turn now just to consider what this humorous, punchy parable might mean for us today, I want to briefly look at three things to help us apply it. The first is just the nature of God's justice. The second is the timing of God bringing his justice. And finally, our response as we wait for God's justice. First, the nature of God's justice. As I said earlier, I think justice is fundamentally about making things right again, about setting to right the wrongs in the world, everything that's broken in the world. God is a God of justice, and and his mission is to make things right again in our world. Amos 5.24 is a famous verse that poetically expresses God's longing for justice. But let justice roll down like waters, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And friends, when we become Jesus' followers, when we enter into the kingdom of God, we get to join in that mission. Our heart, too, begins to ache for justice like God's heart does, especially for the vulnerable, the marginalized, the downtrodden. When I personally think of the work of justice, there's lots of examples, uh, of course, all around us, but I I think of my professors, actually, from my time studying in Honduras um, when I was a college student. Kurt and Joanne, together with four Honduran friends, they co-founded an organization called simply an Association for a More Just Society. These brave Christians are some of my biggest heroes. Over the last decades, um, this group of Hondurans has brought massive government and police corruption to light. They've worked to ensure that victims of gang violence receive justice. They they started this initiative. I thought this one was really cool. If you go to their home page, this is for students and parents. You can actually indicate whether your teacher actually showed up at school to teach that day. Um, in, In a country with a lot of corruption, there were teachers who were drawing a salary but not actually showing up to teach. And they said, this is not right. This is not right. And so 
they, they instituted a system to keep those teachers accountable and let students and parents have that kind of accountability to, to keep them um, accountable that way. M much of what they do is, is slow, it's painstaking work, and it's dangerous too, as they confront powerful people. A number of years ago, one of the lawyers that, that works with ASJ was actually murdered by a criminal gang for his advocacy on behalf of victims. But they're motivated to continue by God's heart for justice. We're all called to, to join in God's mission of seeking justice wherever he's placed us. I recognize that sometimes when we consider all that still needs putting right in the world, it can overwhelm us. It can feel like the work is too much. The world is too broken. But God promises that a day is coming when he will finally set all things right. He will bring about justice for all those who are still suffering, for all those longing and groaning for justice. And, and here's, I think, where we see the connection to Luke chapter 17, where, where Jesus speaks about the coming of the Son of Man and the judgment that will come upon the earth. The parable of the persistent, gutsy widow concludes Jesus' discussion of his second coming. In the day of his coming, will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones, Jesus asks? Yes, of course, he will. And that leads us to the second question related to God's justice, the timing. Let's look at verses 7 and 8 again. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones? who cry out to him day and night, will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. Okay, this one is tricky. First of all, I should tell you that there are nine different plausible, possible translations of that phrase, will he keep putting them off, right? Nine. The NIV here puts it as a rhetorical question. Will God keep putting them off? Jesus answers the question, I tell you, no, he will see that they get justice quickly. Others translate it, though he waits patiently for them, or he bears long with them. I think the tension that translators are working with here is partly grammatical, uh, but it's also, it's the tension that we feel, right? When we read this and when we, when we ask, God, why are you waiting? Why aren't you bringing justice now? You promised justice quickly, and yet 2,000 years later, we're still waiting. How long must we wait for God's justice to be fully revealed? As Bono laments in U2's song based on the words of Psalm 40, how long to sing this song? How long, how long to sing this song? And yet he also sings with the psalmist, I will sing a new song. Lament for the brokenness of the world and hope that one day all things will be made new together. I think there's a couple of things that can help us make sense of God's timing and the apparent delay in his justice. Some of you may be familiar with 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 9. It reads, With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. One reason for God's apparent slowness in bringing justice is that God is patient. God is, is, is actually giving more time for people to repent, to turn to him. You see, God longs for more people to receive forgiveness, to be made right. God wants as many people as possible to trust in him and receive eternal life. 
And that should motivate those of us who have experienced the grace of Jesus to share it with others, right? To invite them too to experience him. Another reason, I think, is that our sense of timing is different from God's. We expect God to act on our timeline. But to quote Gandalf from The Lord of the Rings, a wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. God's timing is never late, nor is he early. He will act precisely when he means to. You see, in God's timeline of history, the next great act after Jesus' ascension to heaven is the return of Jesus in glory and the recreation of heaven and earth. We are living in that interlude, right, between these two great acts of redemption history. We know it's the next event, we just don't know exactly when. It's as if you've gone to see a Shakespeare play, uh, maybe at Bard on the Beach here in Vancouver. Um, after Act 3, there's an intermission. You don't know exactly how long the break is, but you know from your program that Acts 4 and Acts 5 are coming. We know Jesus will return and make all things right, but we don't know when. And, and so the question I think for us today, friends, is, is how do we live? How do we live in that in-between in that waiting, as we wait for God's justice to be fully revealed. Jesus ends his parable with a question. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? It's an open question, right? It's one that is meant to challenge and convict his listeners, including us. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith in me? Jesus knows that his followers will experience suffering and persecution just as he did. He knows that in the waiting we can become weary, we can start to doubt, we can be tempted to give up, we can become bored and complacent, preoccupied with the cares of his life that we we forget about his imminent return. So how can we wait well? Well, one thing we can do, this may not immediately sound practical, but is pray. Remember the introduction to the parable from verse 1? Jesus told them this parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Like the gutsy widow, will we persist in prayer day and night for justice to come? Like Anna the prophet, are we fasting and praying, longing to see the return of the Messiah? This is the kind of faith that Jesus is looking for on earth. Faith that is confident of what we hope for and lives in expectation of that hope being fulfilled. Faith that is expressed in patient, persistent prayer for his kingdom to come, for justice to roll down like a river. Why is prayer so important? Let me suggest just a few things here. Prayer for God's justice aligns our priorities with God's heart. Prayer expresses our ultimate conviction that our our hope is in God as the loving and just judge of the earth, not in ourselves. Prayer reminds us of our daily dependence on God and his care for us. And I think prayer keeps us going in times of doubting or suffering. Preparing this sermon has challenged me, I think personally, to to consider what I pray for. You know, normally I, I pray for the health and protection of my family, for needs within our church here, Uh, perhaps about certain tragedies in the news. All of these things are fine, and I want to keep praying for them. But I wonder, am I missing something? Am I praying, longing, pleading for God's justice to be revealed, for his kingdom to come in its fullness, for him to finally make all things right? 
one of the areas that I felt kind of personally challenged to, to be more faithful in prayer about as I've studied this passage is for, for justice and God's kingdom to come in a part of the world known as the Sahel in Africa. It's that kind of region right below the Sahara. My brother Josh and his family, they, they live there, and he and his wife serve as doctors. Um, this is one of the most impoverished places of the world, one of the least evangelized, and it's one that is terrorized by Islamist jihadists who, who have control over large parts of that area. So I, I, I want to be more faithful in praying for peace and justice in that region, for people there to come to know Jesus, for God's kingdom of shalom to take hold, for children to have daily food to eat. Perhaps there's an area of injustice that God has laid on your heart to pray about and to do something about. It could be a global issue, or maybe it's something much closer to home. Uh, maybe you feel led to pray and volunteer um, in light of the food insecurity here in our own community. So many more people using the food bank as, as budgets are, are tightened, right? What can we do to help people who are struggling with food insecurity? Maybe God has given you a burden to see reconciliation with our indigenous First Nations neighbors, healing from the historical traumas and injustice that they've suffered. I know that some of these issues can feel overwhelming, right? What can we hope to achieve? Friends, the good news is that the greatest work of justice has already been accomplished. You see, when Jesus came to earth, he experienced deep injustice himself. He was betrayed by a close friend. He was condemned and rejected by the religious leaders of his day. He was sentenced to death on a Roman cross, even though he had done no wrong. He did all of this for us, for me, and for you. You see, God's way of, of, of dealing with the injustice of the world was to, to take it upon himself. He bore our sin, our shame all on the cross, all the injustice that we have suffered and the injustice that we perpetrate and commit. He paid the ultimate cost to make things right again. And when God raised Jesus from the dead on the third day, this was Jesus' vindication. He had been proven innocent in God's eyes, declared just and righteous. And so through Jesus' death and resurrection, when we become his followers, we too are declared justified. We've been made right with God. And it's out of that new reality that we're living in, of being made right, that we can join in his mission, right? To seek justice in a hurting world. In just a moment, we're going to respond to what God has done for us by singing. Um, as we prepare to sing, I want to remind you that our prayer team is available to pray with you about anything. You can head to the prayer room in, in the back, uh, in that corner there, or there will be team members up front, I think, to pray with you also. Whatever it is that you are carrying today, maybe it's a concern you've been praying about for a long time. Maybe it's something you're facing this week. We would love to pray for you. And, and as you come forward for prayer, know that our loving Heavenly Father longs to welcome you, longs to meet with you, to feel his love, his care, his affection for you, his chosen ones. Before we sing, I'd like us uh, to do something together here. I'm going to invite us to pray the Lord's Prayer together. We don't often do this, and uh, if you're new to church, it may seem a little strange to you. Um, I know sometimes it can even feel a little bit rote, just words that we have to say in the right order, make sure you don't get out of rhythm. But I, I think as we pray these words, we're, we're reminded 
of God's values and what he wants us to pray for. We pray for his just, peaceful kingdom to come and replace the cruel, unjust kingdoms of the world. We pray for his good and perfect will to be done, not our own selfish desires. We pray for our daily bread, and we're reminded to pray for those who do not have enough to eat. We remember that we've been forgiven, and that frees us to forgive those who have sinned against us for the hurts, injustices they have done against us. We pray for deliverance from temptation and from the evil one, because we know that in this world, those forces of evil and injustice are still so strong. And friends, we, we pray together as a witness to the world that we long for a different kingdom to come, a kingdom where justice rolls down like a mighty river, righteousness like a never-ending stream. Would you stand with me as we, as we pray? We're going to use the words on the screen here and invite you just to, to pray along um, with me as we pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.